Join us as we gather around the hedge, where we dig into technology, business, and culture with the finest minds in computer networking. Hello, Tom. Glad to see the plant is doing well. The desk behind you is at least in some kind of use, even if it's just for a junk table. <laughs> hey, there's some productivity going on. I've got some some serious logic going on in my paper here. You can see. Oh, wow. Look at that. Yeah, look at that. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, this week we have Yvonne with us in hey, her hey, hey. she shed with her bless oh, yeah. your heart sign. I think about that sign all throughout the day. <laughs> well, bless your heart. Sad, honestly. So this is the roundtable show, so we just talk about whatever we want to talk about instead of talking about what the guest wants to talk about, because we have no guest. So there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, this is fun sometimes. So let's begin, I guess. So, Tom, I mean, I don't know. I guess we can start with this Shady Geeks article. There was an article in Dark Reading, oh, been like six months ago now, talking about how we put others off security because we are shady. And <laughs> I think it's a pretty, I think it's a pretty interesting argument. I mean, what I took away from it when I first read it was, you know, it's true that we tend to be, I don't know. IT people either tend to be really crazy about security or super, super lax. It's like doctors, right? Doctors are either super, super lax about their health or you walk into the office and you're like, I just can't compete with that body. <laughs> well, and, and the premise of the article is basically that often security-minded folks, especially security-minded IT professionals, they come across as so paranoid and over the top that even when they have a good solution, they they, they put other people off of it. They 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 either kind of create a mentality where folks are dismissive, or that it's too complicated. Yeah, and too so, hard. how security people approach the conversation actually um, is having a negative impact. Um, on overall security that at least that's yeah. the, uh, that's the argument of the article. So. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's very valid by the way. I mean, when I talk to people about my backup system, right. Which I consider a part of my security. Um, like I'm like, well, I keep everything on a cloud drive and then I back the cloud drive up to a NAS and everybody's like, what? Like, that's crazy. That's just insane. I don't want to do all that work to make sure I store all my files in one folder. And I don't think of it as a lot of work. I just think of it as this is what you got to do to protect yourself. And well, same thing with security. I, I think that the images that are easiest for people to conjure are the ones that are sort of extreme or, um, you know, that, that stand out and the standout images of security are the people in the hoodies and the people like, like Yvonne was talking about, like the paranoia and all that kind of stuff. Um, so uh, no matter what, we'll always have to deal with that, that it's just easier to look at the extremes. I don't know. I, I sort of disagree a little bit with the, you know, all of us are putting people off of security. I would say <laughs> the extreme paranoid people might be putting people off of security, but <laughs> when, when, when I approach projects and, and I, 
I, I have never seen when I've said, okay, but, but for security, we need to do such and such. I don't think I've ever seen someone be like, no, you're weird. Security's weird. But then again, I'm not wearing a hoodie and I'm not like thinking, looking over my shoulder all the time. So yeah. I don't know. Well, I think the other thing that I've seen just culturally among the security um, community and, and often the language that's used is it's very all or nothing. Like you have to, you have to secure all the things or you're totally insecure. You have to check every single box and do every, and, and you know, um, text-based two-factor is just not enough. You just might as well not even have it if you don't do it. Well, you know, let's not go that far, right? That There is a layer of protection with text-based two-factor. Is it perfect? No. If somebody really wants to get into your stuff, can they spoof your phone number and steal it and, and you know, compromise you? Absolutely. But for, um, for somebody whose password is password1234, um, having that additional layer is probably going to be helpful. And, and I think we, um, we get into these all-or-nothing conversations they just aren't helpful. Like they, they don't move things forward. And incrementalism is valuable. Like incremental improvements are how most things on the planet get better. Yeah. 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 I, I'm, I'm thinking of this time when I was standing at the IETF and we were talking about BGP security or network security. And someone walked up to the mic and said, well, you know, I use access lists to block things that I know are bad. And the person after them said, you use access list. Access lists are not security. Access, access lists are just access control. That's nothing to do with security. Don't mistake that access lists are part of security. And, and by the way, we had the same argument over NAT, right? NAT is not security. Obfuscation is not security. Well, I hate to tell you this, but it is. <laughs> Well, and it, it's it's security is such a multi-threaded, multi-pronged yeah. Yeah. situation, right? Like, it, it, again, I'm going to go back to construction analogies. You know, you have a house. Your house has doors and windows. You know, your house is not secure unless you lock all of those. You also have a garage door. You know, there, there are just many ways of entry, and you need different protections depending on those ways of entry. Um, and, you know, you may have a gate at the end of your driveway if you're living in a, in a, on, on a particular type of piece of property. There, there are all kinds of different types of security. And, um, I don't know, I, I think sometimes we get too um, almost fanatical or religious around what fits in what category instead of just looking at holistically, how do we make it better? Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think also part of it is culturally that, Whenever I have friends who say, well, I, I, use, I use a password manager. I myself use a password manager. And I have friends who say, oh, that's, that's too hard. Like, I don't, I don't want to use a password manager because that's too difficult, right? And you're like, well, but let me tell you what the consequences are. And you can immediately see the look on their face like, oh, my. <laughs> like, that's crazy. Like, this stuff is crazy. This will never happen to me. And you're like, yeah, it might. I'm sorry, but it might. And then, you know, you're in this constant roll back and forth between what they should be doing. 
And, and to some degree, it's our own fault for making it sound so complex. And I, I don't know how Plus to, sometimes that. I don't know how to solve that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've had the password uh, manager conversation too, because I use one. I've subscribed to a service with a family plan and my kids are on it too, my adult kids and, and my husband and we. So, and, and once you set it up, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not too complicated because it's, it's integrated. But I think for, um, for folks who don't have a geek in the house, the barrier is pretty high there. Um, and so I do think like the more that we can do to make, to build it in, to make doing the right thing easy, the better, the better off we are. Yeah, I, I agree. I also think that, um, I think you run into issues when there is like one personality or a few personalities who, who really take it upon themselves to be the champion and everyone else is just kind of like, oh, okay, well they're the, they're the security person. There's a queen um, song about that, you know, but go ahead, sorry. <laughs> yes, there is. <laughs> I, I, I think, and then you, then you have the extreme personality thing and all of that. But if you have uh, shared values in the team, uh, whatever that team is, whether it's your family at home or whether it's the, you know, the team at work, if you have shared values about security that are, um, you know, that are appropriate for your environment, I think then everything is normal and it's not, you're less likely to do these extreme things or have these extreme positions of all or nothing. And because the extreme positions from what I've seen just cause you to do nothing. They don't really move you forward in a practical way that I've seen. Um, to, you know, maybe if that person with the extreme position has a lot of power in the organization, but I have not seen those extreme positions do much good. Yeah. Yeah, and, and and part of it too is I think they bring in this article about social proof, and it's a bit of a, a form of virtue signaling in many ways. Oh, look at me! I'm so much more secure. I'm I'm proof against everything, and it actually doesn't work that way. So, but yeah, I think that's all. That's all very true. So, change your security culture, people out there that you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> And speaking of culture, this next article, which I think, Tom, you posted it up, right? Oh, yeah. The Amazon one. Yep. About the Amazon one. About a crumbling engineering culture. And yeah, that's that's a pretty uh, <laughs> Amazon CEO, Andy Jassy, is trying to fix a crumbling engineering culture. Um, that's that's interesting. I So there are a few things about this that I thought were sort of fun. I mean, I... I don't really have a comment about in Amazon's internal culture, um, but some of the things that came up here about about what they're trying to do just uh, highlighted experience from my career. Like one of the things that one of the complaints that they say they've had is that it's there's just a lot of undifferentiated heavy lifting going on in Amazon right now, and I've experienced that. I think most of us probably have. Like the tools just aren't quite there, so I've got to do this, that, and the other manually, and like nobody's incentivized to make that any better, and I certainly don't have time to, and so you know I'll just keep doing these manual things uh, just long enough to get by. And in the meantime, it's sort of making me cranky and stuff like that. Sounded like there's a, a bit of that going on in Amazon. And then some of the other stuff I thought was interesting. You know, they have a whole team now, uh, 400 plus people on this team dedicated to making the developer experience better. Um, Amazon's a massive company, but um, 
that seemed very interesting to me. I don't know. It just, it touched on a lot of things that I have uh, experienced. I've had some places that I've worked where all the tools are there. Um, you know, everything's there. We've got, you know, CICD systems ready to go. We have, you know, uh, a version control, a Git server somewhere that's an approved corporate thing is secured and managed by somebody else. And then I've had other places where it's like, what you want Git? Well, you're going to have to stand that up yourself. <laughs> and, you know, and it's just, um, it can be hard and, and it can be something that, keeps you from innovating for sure. I don't know. What did you guys think of it? Yeah. So I think it's indicative of the culture in IT is changing. There used to be a time when we didn't really care. We stood it up ourselves because that was fun, right? The part of the fun Mm -hmm. was building your own lab. Part of the fun was standing up your own. Now, of course, what then happens is you end up in this position where, okay, you can do that, but then you end up with a thousand different Git servers configured just slightly different. And that's a bad thing. So then what happens is Corp starts putting all this these requirements on any time you put in a new server, which then makes it much less fun. And then like you end up in this position where people just stop um, what it's no fun. It's no, it, you, I just don't want to do this anymore. I want the convenience of having somebody else do it for me. And I think this is bound to happen anytime you end up in a democratized situation or a commoditized situation. To me, this is almost a, a, um, situation where we're commoditizing development to some degree. Um, as it spreads out, and, and people might not agree with that, but that that feels to me a lot like where um, where it was wh- where we're going. Well, I think I I think I agree with the idea that you commoditize the pipeline and the tools right. that are used to development. I don't think it's the same thing as commoditizing development itself because that is done by some people. You know, ship it over to a cheaper market and and just don't even do development anymore. I think that's possible. I don't know. I I've appreciated places where it's done for me, especially as I get older. Like I don't have to take care of a, of a, of a pipeline. Awesome. Cause most pipelines suck. <laughs> so yeah. someone else can handle it. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I, I think as I, as I read this article too, like culture is this thing that constantly has to be curated, right? Like it, it's just not static. And as your organization grows and changes, the things that worked for you culturally a few years ago may not work now because of the size of the organization. Like you you may have a very, um, some orgs have a very informal reporting structure early on because everybody knows everybody and you can keep everybody's name in your head and you know who to talk to to get X, Y, and Z done. And as an organization grows, you just can't operate that anymore. You have to have a little bit more structure or everybody spends time churning because the, the because relationally, like you can't know everybody and you don't know who owns anything or how to get anything done. And I think, too, like this happens in engineering organizations, right? We, we had a way that we worked 10 years ago that worked for us, but now our business has changed. The size of our organization has changed. The tools that we need change. I mean, it, it, you know, given enough time, any technology becomes legacy. And what worked for us doesn't work anymore. And, and, and when I read articles like this, like that's, that's what I think. Like I don't, I don't have a particular opinion on, on Amazon specific culture, but I think sometimes organizations in general go through identity crises because they think of themselves as the organization they were 10 years ago and they're not that organization anymore. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I think that's, that's extremely, that's very true. And, and a lot of what we're seeing in this world beyond what I was saying, which is, you know, we're, we're I don't want to say we're getting lazy. I want to say that we are getting, um, we're specializing more and mm. we're expected to do more in our area faster. And therefore, like a company's willing to give us these types of go hire 500 people to make our jobs easier because it's well, hard to find these people. And it's interesting, like, because if, 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 if you, if you imagine a, a surface area where that's, that's fully colored, it's like one, one solid color and, and, and you've got a bunch of different people that are represented in that surface area and their skill sets are what make the color and color the page. Well, as those people get more specialized and narrow, the side, the surface area they take up contracts, right? And so you have more, the more specialized you get, the more likely it is you're going to have gaps in capabilities and you have to figure out how you're going to fill those gaps. And, and I, I think problems can emerge there too. Like we've got people that are deeply specialized in all these different areas, but nobody knows how to stitch it all together. Like mm-hmm. those kinds of things can ha- happen as well. When we get when we go super deep, um, and, and you have to be more narrow the deeper you go because we all can only do so much, and our brains can only function so well, and our processors only process so much. So I, I think that we we can see those things emerge too. Um, yeah, when we look at specialization, I think the transition can catch engineering leaders uh, unawares pretty easily, um, at, like almost like it sneaks up on them every single time, which, you know, and that, and that by itself, having engineering leaders not know what's going on and not, not seeing this transition as it takes place can take a toll. I mean, I've seen organizations shed people because that transition was happening and nobody knew that that's what was going on. Right. And yeah. And the other thing is, I think it takes a certain personality to want to stitch things together rather than just specialize. I think more of us want to specialize than want to generalize and abstract and stitch together. And so that gets this gap where there's like this really important job that not a whole lot of people want to do. And, but you have to have it or else you're going to have these cultural issues and it can get really interesting. It, we, we need project managers, but none of us want to be a project manager. Right. Like it's that, it's that problem. <laughs> right. Yep. Yeah. Right. And part of that's because we love our capes. You know, the deep person is the person who gets the attention. Fortunately or unfortunately, that's the way it works. The expert gets the attention not the person who is the, the the broad outside person who does, you know, all the different things. And I don't, that's just something that is a, a cultural issue that's not limited, by the way, to IT. It's across the board. It's just the way it is. You know, when I was doing my PhD, one of my professors said, the goal of the PhD is to dive deeper than anyone else has ever Dive before, pick up the smallest piece of rock that you can find at the bottom of the ocean and come up completely dry because it doesn't, (laughs) the little rock you just picked up was really deep and nobody really cares. (laughs) (laughs) I like like what you said there about capes, Russ, because... um, I think what we celebrate is, is really important. And, and sometimes we're not really aware of what we're celebrating. We're just sort of naturally doing it. And when you celebrate the person with the Cape, then you reward specialization above all else. And so maybe, you know, maybe a takeaway from this is if you, if you're in that transition, if your organization's in that transition, then 
start celebrating the integrators and, you know, start making that something that's desirable. Um, and you know, maybe that, maybe that's a way to ease the pain and, and maybe even do something better. I don't know. Yeah. Don't just make innovation about <clears throat> developing something new, make it about uh, doing something or adding value in a way that wasn't added before. And I think that's, that's a very definite thing that we don't do very well. So, yeah. So the third article we hit this month was Yvonne Pepignac. And, you know, really, we should bring him on the show to defend himself. But no, let's not. Let's just, <laughs> let's just talk let's, about him. <laughs> let's just talk about him because that's more fun. <laughs> yeah, so, so this, this, go ahead, Yvonne. We, yeah, no, this, this, this article by Yvonne, he's talking about um, uh, multi-cloud environments and, and sort of the, the, the myth of the multi-cloud application. And, and he makes the point that there, there are serious and real risks between taking a single application and trying to run it on multi- multiple cloud providers. Um, and, and frankly, like I, th- I think his point is well taken, even as somebody who uh, works for a cloud provider and often talks to customers who um, want to run multi-cloud. And I do believe there are absolutely use cases for that. But to to plan to run a single application across multiple clouds comes with its own risks. And oftentimes we will hear, well, you know, do we really want all of our eggs in a single cloud provider basket? Um, and, and while I understand that, that you've got to also calculate what the risk of is of running a single application across multiple cloud providers. Russ has always talked about interaction surfaces. Like what are the extra interaction surfaces that you have when you try to try to do connectivity and run an application across multiple providers? What do you do about your load balancers? What do you do about uh, reachability? Uh, How do you detect failures and and all those things? And that gets increasingly complex when you're using providers who have very different mental models for what the infrastructure looks looks like. So I think um, uh, while e- even I will make arguments for multi-cloud and using the right tool to solve the right problem, um, it's really difficult to build a single application that's going to function well yeah. across multiple cloud providers. Yeah, this all comes back to the idea that more is more, more is more resilient, resilient, and it's absolutely not true. I mean, I always go back to the lab test that we did with the Edge ERP and showing that your convergence time goes down until you get to about three paths. When you get to four parallel paths, things get really iffy. When you get to five and six, things get even more iffy. And when you have more parallel paths than won't fit in your local routing table, things go crazy. And you actually converge more slowly. And so we always seem to think that there's just no trade-off between having more and having, um, and, but there is, oh my gosh, there's always this huge trade-off and we're just not thinking about it. And I, I don't know how to get people to think about that in a better way. Uh, and this again, is just, it, multi-cloud is the same thing, right? Having two providers is better than one. Well, maybe, and maybe not. It just really, it all depends. I can see how, um, you know, purely from a network engineering perspective, I can see how 
you could easily go into the more is better. Uh, when you go to build something, you're going to go build some infrastructure. You're going to build it to be highly available and resilient. You're going to have redundant border routers and redundant core routers and stuff like that. And so it's like, well, obviously you put two of them there. And so you think about that and it's, it is pretty easy to skip past the reasoning of why did you put two of them there? And then you can sort of extrapolate that into, well, we've got one cloud over here and another cloud over here. We always put two of them, right? And two of them is more resilient. I, I can see the, you know, how you get there in the logic. But but even if you just step back and look at even like network devices from a single vendor in a, in a quote resilient um, design, there there are already trade offs there, and you did, they just have been papered over, and you didn't you didn't really need to because of re- reference architectures and stuff like this. You never really had to think about it too much. But even in the, the from the same vendor uh, trying to deploy two things to be resilient, there's trade offs to be made, um, not just in operability but in convergence like you're saying in other things. And um, I don't know, I, I think it comes back to thinking about w- what is resilience and is it the same thing as redundancy? And, um, you know, what's the problem you're trying no. to solve? <laughs> and, we just, and we just don't have good formulas to measure complexity and then understand the impact of a certain degree of complexity on user experience, which is really what we should care about. Like we should care about what user experience is when they're accessing applications. And so, and, and I, can, I can very easily foresee a circumstance in which misconfigurations and complexity is actually going to cause more challenges with user experience than uh, whatever short-term outage you, you're going to have with a public cloud. Um, I mean, yeah. part of the reason we there's such a big deal when they happen, public cloud outage, outages, is because they don't happen very often, um, and uh, and and we we just we don't have a good way to measure complexity, especially when you're talking about disparate systems. Um, just what's your metric, you know? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's it's a very hard area or a very hard thing to think about in a way that makes sense. And by the way, part of this, and I, I'm going to say this, and, and I may have to run away from the microphone and because I'm going to be, people are going to be throwing fruit at me, is I wonder sometimes if we aren't just coming up with these measures as an argument against cloud. Like, yeah, cloud's cheaper than building a data center, but look, I can't just do one. I've got to do both. And therefore, it's going to be twice as much. And I wonder how often, it may not be very often, but I, but I can imagine that this comes up in some situations. Well, people are always going to make arguments to control behavior, whether those arguments are valid or not. Yeah, and that, and exactly. that, happens, that happens in your on-prem data center. That happens, happens with the public cloud. I think the, the challenge that we run into with this specific conversation is so much gets abstracted up at the higher levels in an organization where you have, you know, executive level leaders making decisions, general directional decisions, when they haven't thought about the actual technical complexities that are going to result from that, that decision. I mean, in general, two is better than one. Uh, uh, okay, two, two, two what's, right? And what additional layers are required to make those two things work together. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's that, you know, you also got a number of moving parts, right? The more moving parts you have in any system, the more likely it is that something's going to break. 
Yeah. Um, and that's 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 the other thing that we don't often consider. Yeah. That's definitely true. And we do it the other direction, by the way, too. We look at we look at a pro, we looked at a network and say, I don't want to deploy a second protocol because adding a second protocol is more complex than having a single protocol. And honestly, that's not really true either. And it could also be true in the cloud space that you might be better off to deploy two cloud providers for different purposes than to try to force fit one provider into two completely different solution sets because you're trying to reduce the complexity and make it more resilient. None of that works. That's all like, it's all how many balloons fit in a bag. <laughs> right, and those is. are all like abstracted generalizations. Like you, you've, if you can always wind it back to what problem are we trying to solve? What's the outcome that we're trying to achieve and what tools are we going to use to get there? And then what, what's the, the best configuration of all those tools to, to make the system work and work well, you know, that, that is, is the best, but you've got to get back to what problem are we trying to solve as opposed yep. to two clouds are better than one. Well, to do what, yes. <laughs> you, know, you know, it, it could and be, we, it yeah. could be, yeah, could I don't be. know. <laughs> yeah. I just don't, I just don't assume. And yeah, this goes back to, we need to learn, we need to think better, right? We need to think more about like, okay, what are we trying to solve? And again, going all the way back to the first article, a lot of times we just want to say, no, uh, access lists are not secure. Let's just do something better. Let's encrypt. Well, maybe encryption isn't the best thing all the time. Maybe more security is the security people will use rather than the security you think they should use. And, and we don't tend to do a lot of that type of thinking in our, in our culture. Yeah. I mean, we like, we like these very, um, we, we like to make broad generalizations, you know, um, and encryption is a great example because encrypting what at what layer, right? Because we, anymore we're in an industry where, we encrypted the application level layer. We encrypted the network level. We encrypted the hardware layer, right? Like, and 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 depending on your like, really, like, do we really need that many layers of encryption? And does and then somebody's going to come up with a great product? Is oh, you can encrypt this? Well, yeah, but I'm just adding like a fourth layer of encryption with added complexity. I'm burning silicon, which is in short supply right now, <laughs> to, to do work that we don't even need to do, right? Yeah. Um, and, uh, and and yeah. we just don't think about it at a systems level often. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I remember another time in the lab when we were fighting with uh, getting an access list to differentiate between the traffic that needed to be encrypted and the traffic that didn't need to be. Because we were under the assumption that the cost of encryption was so high that we needed to be selective about what we encrypted. And it actually turned out after testing it in real life that it was cheaper to encrypt everything than it was to classify which traffic needed to be encrypted and which didn't. Just just be done. Just encrypt everything. And again, you know, not something that was anything somebody would think about, right? Like not, not a path you would ever go down. Because why would you? Well, how would you ever make that kind of assumption? Um, and, and just like we said before, those those realities change over time too. Yeah. With as the technology changes, as 
threat landscape changes, as the economy changes, you know, it's it's just, well, when I was in this team 10 years ago, we did it this way and it worked fine. Well, <laughs> yeah, good for you. <laughs> <laughs> That's not necessarily very, might, that's a good guide point perhaps for today. And maybe it's worth looking at that solution and saying, yeah, you know, we should, we should really think about this, but it's not necessarily the right thing to do all the time. Um, you know, go back, learn to write, ask the right questions. And, and I, I actually did a, a talk at um, UTK this last week about life as an engineer. And I, I, of course, you know what I did. I, I went all rule 11 for the whole talk, like nice. learn to ask the right questions. <laughs> is this a helpful layer of, of abstraction or is it just a misdirecting layer of abstraction? Yeah, right? Exactly. Um, yeah. And so that's, we can also get in that all abstractions are bad. Actually, no, they're not. Or no, they're still not. still be writing an assembly, and nobody wants to do that, right? Um, I don't yeah. know. Some people do. Well, good for them. We, we, <laughs> we, need, those, we need those specialists. Somebody needs to do that yeah, work. We, we, well, need we, those, need we need those it. kinds of people. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I like that. Somebody needs to do that work. <laughs> I'm glad it's not me. <laughs> I know that's not what you meant. I'm teasing. <laughs> well, no. I mean, sometimes it's true, right? It's like, awesome. I'm glad you love to translate Greek. Yeah, I got other things to do. I mean, I don't know. There's some people who just enjoy that, and that's good for them. And God bless them. We need them, honestly. We yeah, need people absolutely. who can do that stuff. But also, thank God it's not me. <laughs> <laughs> and and somebody looks at what you do and thinks exactly the same thing. Exactly. It's yeah. all good. It's yeah. all yeah, good. good. That's right. That's that's always great. Uh, so I don't have any more on any of these articles. I don't know. Any other things to talk about? No, I don't think so. Yeah, no? no, I think I think we hit it. Oh it's always funny how the same themes emerge through uh, through all the articles that we have, even if they're, they're disconnected. Some of that's probably like recency bias, but it's always fun. <laughs> yep. Are we are we are we running out of things to talk about? No. <laughs> Never. <laughs> no. Okay. All right. Well, I guess we'll cap it off there. And uh, let's see, Tom. Where can people follow you if they want to? Uh, LinkedIn and Twitter. I almost forgot it for a second. <laughs> uh, just search for Tommy Ammon. I, you'll find me. I don't blame you for forgetting about Twitter. It's okay. You can. <laughs> it's fine. No, not not to I be offensive to anybody who Twitter. works at, at Twitter, but. <laughs> I have a soft spot for Twitter. You just have to really carefully curate your feed. That's all. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we should do a show on curating your feed so I can figure out how to do that because I don't do a very good job of it. Mm. So, and Yvonne, where can people get in touch with you? The She Shed? They can just come by yeah. and see you at the She Shed? They can, but that's a really high effort endeavor. Um, <laughs> if, if they'd like to connect with a little less effort, they can can get me on Twitter at Sharp Network. Um, I'm on LinkedIn, and also check out the blog at esharp.net. Awesome. Okay. I'm Russell White. You can always find me here at 11.tech on the hedge. Uh, every week we try to do a head show. It just depends on who's doing what and who has time and who doesn't. 
<laughs> it's just one of those things. But um, so catch us here the next time on The Hedge. And thanks for coming by and listening. Subscribe to The Hedge on your favorite podcast service or follow along at rule11.tech.